It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Well, if you're wondering what today's show is going to be on, we go through and, you know, every now and then there's something that happens out there in the financial world where um, it, it might be a big talking head or somebody who's very famous in the financial arena, like a Warren Buffett, um, will make a comment and, and we react to it. I mean, obviously you guys know we do the Berkshire Hathaway annual report is one of those things I kind of rub my hands together and get excited for almost like Christmas. We're going to do the same thing this year. Well, I should say this episode. I don't know why I said huh. this year. I guess it's because I was thinking about Warren Buffett and his right, annual right. shareholder report, but Bill Gross has really been making some waves because he made some comments. And, that, Brian, who is Bill Gross? Well, and I'm going to get into that. I'm going to get into that. In case people don't know who Bill Gross is, I'm going to give you the, the quick Wikipedia-type um, intro on who Bill is. But I wanted to let you know, if you've heard some of the things that Bill Gross has said, we're going to cover those today. Now, before we get into the the the, the nuts and bolts of, of the show today, I did want to give a big shout-out to one of our listeners who kind of went above and beyond and, and looked to help us out. We got an email from Jason, and I don't think Jason wants me to give his full name, but Jason is also our tipper, or, or lack of tipper, um, that, that, you know, he gave us a great email that we use in the show. Well, you remember last show, we told you we had a brand new mixer board, and I went out and I got this mixer board that looks almost like I might moonlight in the nighttime as either a DJ or maybe an electronic producer. I mean, this thing looks tough. I mean, doesn't it look tough? Oh, it's, it's tough looking. We didn't know how to use it, though. So as you could tell, because we got a few emails from a few few of you guys when we asked for feedback, and you said, hey, there's some hissing, there's some background noise, some white noise um, that we need to address. So Jason hooked us up with some some information, and then, Bo, I know I'll, I left you with it yesterday. You also did something that is kind of not normal for us. It, oh, it's way outside the norm for us. What we did last week was we physically pulled this mixer out of the package, the box, Plugged it in, started the podcast, you know, after we finally got sound coming out of it, because it took us about 10 minutes to even figure out what buttons to push to get the sound to come out. And then we went with it. And since we're so classically trained and, you know, audio, digital recording, surely that was good enough, right? Well, we found out that if you, you learn a lot if you read the book. I mean, it's amazing what you learn <laughs> if you read the book. We were just twisting knobs and pushing buttons, and uh, little did we know, each each little thing serves a very specific function. So, so, uh, so now Bo has another skill set. In addition to producer, right, um, financial advisor, right, future CFA, he's also going to now be um, board mixer. <laughs> board mixer. DJ, DJ Bo. So let's jump into today's show. First of all, if you were just now listening to us, this is The Money Guy Show. You can write us at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also write Bo. That's B-O at money-guy.com. Check out the show notes at money-guy.com as well. So I think I've pounded that in everybody's head enough. This actually came to our attention in addition to just seeing all the financial news. Um, one of our listeners, Rob, who's a really good listener of the show, he said, Brian, I'd love to hear your commentary on Bill Gross's most recent comments concerning the death of equities. Pretty aggressive language in there, going so far as to call the stock market a Ponzi scheme if it averages more than GDP growth. I was sort of surprised to hear Gross be so negative, even though he is a bond guy. Right. So this is why, and Bo, this is why I didn't want to jump into it too soon, is I kind of wanted to walk through who Bill Gross is and who Bill Gross is to me. Um, 
we are big fans. I mean, you can't – one of the things I tell people when, when we were doing some practice management work for other financial advisors, when we've spoken at conferences and other things, when people ask me, who do you listen to? Who do you put the most weight to when you're trying to figure out what voices do you take seriously when you're doing research? And one of the primary things I tell them is the same thing I tell them when people talk about private deals, is how much skin in the game does an individual have? And I will tell you, Bill Gross is somebody I respect greatly because he um, runs the largest bond mutual fund in the world. That's right, I said the world. Um, and Bill Gross, I've, I've used the analogy, you've heard me say it many, many times, Bo, he is the Warren Buffett of the bond marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to go pull up PIMCO total return um, and look at how it's performed, it is kind of just a benchmark itself. I mean, it, it, it sets the stage for what's going to happen in the bond world. When he comes on TV and say CNBC and makes a comment, the market, the bond market specifically reacts to what Bill says. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he just recently in the last year or two win bond manager of the decade? Yeah, or he's, like that? He, he's got, I'm sure, you know, I don't even know if he puts up his awards anymore. He probably right. has a box in the corner that, you know, he comes home from an awards banquet and just, you know, pops Honey, it in there and goes, <laughs> you know, at some point this will all end. But, uh, you know, right now it's pretty cool. So I also did go pull the Wikipedia because I think it's, it's good to have perspective. Um, just like I've shared with you guys, huge fan of, of Warren Buffett, but even when I hear his comments I don't agree with, I always say, what's the motivation for somebody to say some of these things? And Warren Buffett, I've given you guys the background. He does a lot of insurance. There might, you know, also owns credit rating agencies. He has some, some things that might drive him to say some of the things that he says from time to time. It's the same thing with Bill Gross. Bill Gross runs the largest bond fund company in the world. So you can tell that there probably is something there with that, too. You have to pay attention to how people get paid and what they make their living in. I do think it's interesting because I want you to keep this in perspective. According to Forbes in 2011, Bill Gross is the 564th richest person in the world with a net worth of $2.1 billion. Wow. That's billion with a B. You know, So this guy, he, he's, he's doing a lot of the right things. But I will tell you, I've been following Bill for decades now, and Bill is very active with his what he says. I mean, he gets into politics. He talks about that type of stuff. He's not scared. I think once you probably, I think once you probably break, I don't know if it's a hundred million, if it's a billion, right? Maybe it's a billion and a half dollars. You get to a point where you're just like, I don't care what people think anymore. So I'm going to tell you exactly what I think, and you know, and it's my opinion, right? And that's kind of what Bill does. I will tell you though, when I read the commentary, and I, what I'm, the way I'm going to lay this out is I'm going to go through, I'm going to first read the intro of this cult figures commentary that he posted on his, um, investment outlook. And we'll, we'll make sure that Nikki puts this up there on the show notes too. And then I'm going to read through everything that he boldfaced. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I, I figured if Bill boldfaced it, this is something he obviously wanted to draw attention to. Right. And we'll talk a little bit about the charts that he posted and then some of the counter research that we found. It kind of disputes the creative way he's trying to create a narrative. And be careful, sometimes people are creating narratives, and I'm guilty of this way. We talked about, um, uh, you know, we all have blind spots. Right. And I think politics is like religion. 
you don't try to change people's opinion because it just, and that's why you guys, I know some people say otherwise, but we really do try to stay out of politics and controversial things. But you gotta help, you can't help but look at sometimes when people say things, if there's a motivation of of why they're doing these things. So, um, I'm going to kind of jump in here and start reading a little bit of what he has. And then, you know, give you some anecdotal information that, that shares that I don't completely agree with Bill, even though I have tremendous respect for Bill Gross. I mean, you can't have the reputation and, and the success he's had without having a lot of respect for him. It, but this is how the commentary starts out. It's titled Cult Figures. It says, the cult of equity is dying, like a once bright green aspen turning to subtle shades of yellow, then red in the Colorado fall, investors' impressions of stocks for the long run, or any run, run have mellowed as well i tweeted last month that the souring attitude might be a generational thing <laughs> boomers can't take risk gen x and y believe in facebook but not its stock gen z has no money true enough but my tweeting 95 character message still didn't answer the question as to where the love or the aspen like green went and why it seemed to disappear so quickly several generations were weaned and in fact grew wealthier believing that pieces of paper representing shares of future profits were something more than a conditional IOU that came with risk. Hadn't history confirmed it? Jeremy Siegel's rather ill-timed book affirming the equity cult published in the late 1990s allowed for brief cyclical bear markets but showered scorn on any heretic heretic willing to question the inevitability of a decade-long period of upside stock market performance compared to the alternatives. Now in 2012, however, an investor can periodically compare the returns of stocks for the past 10, 20, and 30 years and find that long-term treasury bonds have been the higher returning and obviously safer investment than a diversified portfolio of equities. In turn, it would show that higher risk is usually, but not always, rewarded with excess return. So some pretty powerful stuff in there, if you break it down to what he's really saying. Now, I will tell you, when I read this, it immediately made me think of, because we've used this in commentary, I think we've probably even used it in the podcast, Business Week in 1979, I believe it was August of 1979, had a cover story story titled, The Death of Equities, How Inflation is Destroying the Stock Market. And, you know, and, and people... They freak out when they hear this type of stuff because they're like, oh my God, you know, I've got my 401k in a lot of equities. Uh, you know, what, what Mr. Gross, he's so rich and he says this stuff. What am I going to do? And I, I just want to tell you guys, it's going to be okay. This is just an opinion from somebody who's very successful, but we're going to tell you some underlying things that will hopefully make you feel better about it. Now, there's one big thing that when I read that, that paragraph, I couldn't help but think about. Is that do we not, I mean, as many bubbles as we've come through in the last decade, I mean, think about the tech bubble. We had a, you know, anything that had dot com after its name at the early, late 90s, early 2000s, you could get a hundred multiple, a price to earnings multiple of a hundred, and everybody thought it was reasonable. Right. This is completely reasonable because trees grow to heaven. Well, then we came through that period and then real estate, real estate, as you know, everybody's like, well, God ain't making more. Right. So land is where you want to have all your money. So everybody piled into the real estate. And then after that was done, 
we had the collapse of the financial markets, primarily because of the run-up in real estate. There was a lot of tying into the real estate, tied into the financial markets with all the mortgage-backed securities. So, of course, everybody is scared. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear out there in the economy. And plus, there's, you know, I will tell you, things have changed. I mean, it's scary to be a business owner when, let's face it, when government's having trouble with huge deficits and other problems, and then you look at your company and you go, gosh, how are we going to pay for all this stuff? You do start wondering if you're going to have a target on your back. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and people are sitting on a lot of cash. And when these type of things happen, guess where the next bubble is formed? The next bubble is formed when the highest performing asset class of last year was in the bond sector. It was right. actually in government treasuries and government bonds, I should say. So, cause it was the long-term government bond was right. the highest performing asset class. Um, that's another bubble. So when he says something like now in 2012 and you look at the find that long-term treasury bonds have been the higher returning and obviously safer investment than a diversified portfolio of equities. I would start getting scared, guys, of that, those bonds, because if you look at mutual fund inflows, mutual fund inflows are showing money's coming out of the stock market still. Money is flowing in in vast quantities to the bond market because all individual investors care about, the ones that aren't smart enough to listen to this show or keep abreast of everything, is that what was last year's performance? What was the performance of three years ago? And if you're right. driving through the rearview mirror, God help you. Because that's what's going to get you in trouble. So I think there's a little bit of a problem. We've got stocks at great valuations, and he's comparing them to bonds that just went. They're going through a really a, an irrational, if you want to steal from Greenspan, mm-hmm. an irrational period of growth. Now, before I continue to read, I think we also have to educate you a little bit on what is a stock, because the next you know thing I'm going to read to you is about how he's going to try to tie GDP growth, meaning growth of the economy with the stock market. And they, they, to some degree, they're attached. I mean, because obviously if the economy is growing, businesses are growing. Right. So, they, so they do work. But I think he makes a, 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 an attachment of those two numbers that's not completely accurate. Right. But what is a stock? Bo, we were talking about this earlier. And um, I'm going to, do you feel comfortable telling or do you want me to kind of jump in? Yeah. On so, so essentially when we were talking about why, why do people even invest, invest in companies? And essentially when you buy a stock, you're buying ownership in a company. And I think Warren Buffett in some of his lectures has explained it better than anyone else. Essentially what you're doing is you're trading $1 today for the future cash flows of that company, which means you feel like if I give a company a dollar today, they will return more to that more than that to me in the future. And so that's the reason we invest. That's kind of the underlying purpose of why we defer our consumption today, purchase a future cash flow that we think will be greater than the amount that we have today. So ultimately, in the end, you're buying shares of companies you think are going to be profitable um, in the future. And, and kind of what the entire stock market is built around is companies being profitable. And we live in this, this barter and exchange society where we work, we earn a wage. With that wage, we go buy things that we don't want to make ourselves. Instead of growing our own you know, produce, fruits, vegetables, we go to the grocery store and we trade our hard-earned time for that produce. And so, so long as we live in an economy where that's happening, in a society that promotes that sort of free market type idea, companies are going to be profitable. There are going to be... Um, companies that are able to generate revenue, create income, 
and you as a shareholder, as an owner of stock, are going to participate in the future productivity of those companies. Here's the, here's the basics of it. You give somebody money so that you, you keep that value. That value doesn't go away. You, you give a dollar. You're hoping it stays a dollar if the company is a profitable company, but you also get a pr- pr- portion of the future income. And I've done this on the show, and I was just trying to pull it up, but I, you know, I'm, I'm on the spot, and I should have probably had this before in show prep. But I did a show a while back where we had the earnings of General Electric 50 years ago and then the earnings of General Electric now. And it was exponentially different, meaning that General Electric as a company is making thousands of times more money than they did back 40, 50, 60 years ago. And it's those type, it's that type of growth of earning power that is really what's driving the stock price. And what keeps you honest with stock is price to earnings ratios. That's why if you, you know, when you, for all the hub hub out there about the stock market, look at your price to earnings ratio, your PE. And you know, forever they teach you in basic finance classes. Considered, you know, an historical average is somewhere around 15. If you can get a price to earnings ratio of 15, that's pretty close to being n- near a normal average. In periods when the stock market has gone into a bubble period, we've exceeded that to the point that, you know, when we got into the early 2000s, we were in the high 20s with, with the price earnings ratio. And now I believe, depending upon how you, your, which earnings you're using, we're right above 10, somewhere at 10, 11, somewhere in that range. I know we don't have the numbers right in front of us, but we're considered very fairly valued right now. And that's the point that keeps you honest about buying stock is that, is the price to earnings ratio fairly valued? Um, reading on to what Bill has to say, he goes on, he goes, if wealth or real GDP, which is the economy, was only being created at an annual rate of 3.5% over the same period of time, then somehow stockholders must be skimming 3% off the top each and every year if the, an economy's GDP could only provide 3.5% more goods and services per year, then how could one segment, stockholders, so consistently profit at the expense of the others, lenders, laborers, and government. And, you know, one thing is, is that everything's not linear. Right. Meaning that you can, I mean, I will tell you, stock markets don't make their money in nice little 6.6% increments. You, you just don't see it. You'll have a year where the stock market will make 20%. You'll have a year that the stock market loses 8%. It, that is very important. You're, you know, when you get into the financial markets or your dollar cost averaging period, the period that you're saving money, definitely plays a part of it. So when he talks about the growth rate of GDP at three, you know, at the historical three and a half percent, and then the stock market's been averaging six point six, how are they doing it? Where's that three percent coming from? I say it's part of it is timing, but also I would tell you they're not exclusive of each other. They don't right. work together. I have very. We, there was a scatter plot I saw comparing the earnings of the uh, the actual performance of the Standard and Poor's index, this you know S and P five hundred, to GDP growth. They're not correlated. This is this is he's trying to make an, a an, a point a causal relationship that's not causal. Yeah, and you have to be careful. And that's what statistics is very powerful stuff if you're using it correctly. And I think that like I said, I think there's a narrative here. Um, Continuing on, he goes, common sense would argue that appropriate price stocks should return more than bonds. Their dividends, but th- here's, the, here's the jab at stocks. Here's a jab here. Listen, it says, their dividends are variable, their cash flows less certain, and therefore an equity risk premium should exist, which compensates stockholders for their junior position in the capital structure. So 
the thing when we made this point in our commentary, and we did the podcast on the commentary, where we talked about comparing the the 10-year treasury bond, the government 10-year treasury bond to Coca-Cola. And Bo, I know you had the commentary pulled out. Coca-Cola is paying a dividend of what? Isn't it like two point? I want to say it's like 2.6%. Let me scroll down to it. Really. So yeah, so Coke right now pays a dividend of 2.6%. Um, the 10-year treasury note is what? 1.6 as of the writing of the commentary. So when we wrote the commentary, the 10-year treasury bond, which means that you invest in a sum of money, it's going to pay you 1.6%. Realizing though, inflation is well above that. So you're, even though you're guaranteed a rate of return, you're not guaranteed a return of purchasing power. Meanwhile, you could buy Coca-Cola, which by all, you know, historical purposes is a very stable company, paying you a 2.6% dividend annually. And when you talk about variable, I'll tell you, variably, they typically increase. Right. This has not been a variable where companies historically are dropping their dividends. Now, they in 2008, obviously, with the financial crisis, there were some hiccups. But that is not the norm. And I don't want people to get, let that fear just keep them from making the right financial decisions. Um, and then you you got a company that is expanding into the global world that you're going to have an interest in. And I'm not saying go sell all your bonds to buy Coca-Cola, believe me. I'm not, I'm not a, a proponent of anybody loading up on anything. I think it's a disaster if you go buy a ton of bonds. I think it's a disaster if you go buy a ton of stocks. We're the proponents of a diversified portfolio that reflects your risk level, your age, your financial assets, and what your goals are. If you're not taking those things into account, what do you really have working for you? I'm going to continue on because this one really kind of chapped me a little bit, especially from a guy who I have a tremendous respect for, but he is worth $2.1 billion because I felt like there was definitely an agenda with this statement. It said, chart two, and this is what this chart is, it's called a capital, he titled it Capital Trump's Labor. It says, chart two points out one of the additional reasons why equities have done so well, well compared to GNP slash over wealth creation. Economists will confirm that not only the return differentials within capital itself. Um, hang on, let me skip ahead. It says, chart two confirms that real wage gains for labor have been declining as a percentage of GDP since the early 70s. A 40-year stretch, which has yielded the majority of the past century's real return advantage of stocks. Labor gaveth, capital tooketh away in part due to the significant shift of globalization and the utilization of cheaper emerging market labor. I think this is a flawed statement because we have a chart showing GDP growth. And guys, it's, we have a, a, a GDP, world GDP from the 1700s. And I'm going to see if we can somehow get that chart that I gave you in that commentary onto the, the Money Guy website. And you're going to see something magical happened about 50 years ago with GDP growth worldwide. And it's called technology, guys. Employers and employees didn't get taken advantage of where their labor went down. What actually happened was productivity gains were exponential, tremendous. Technology has made us all much more efficient and much more capable of doing the work that, you know, was not available years ago because now we don't have to do as much manual stuff. Now we have computers that do the processing that make things instantaneous. So what that has allowed us over the last 50 years, the standard of living for all people has gone up substantial. It hasn't been a loss of labor income. I mean, that's, that, I think that, that is a flaw to say that this is done on the backs of labor. We're more productive. 
I mean, I think that that is especially because I don't. I guarantee if you ask Mr. Gross, do you feel like you exploited people to get to your $2 billion? He's going to say, no, I'm a good guy. I give to charity. I have employees that I've enriched them. They've become rich by working at my company. But yet somehow he thinks others are, are doing it. And, it, and there, I think there's a flaw there somehow. Right. And, and, and that bothers me that, that, he, that he's doing that because I think he's a very capable man. But that's a flaw. Productivity gains are different than exploiting people. It just shows you can get more work done much more efficiently. And, and, that, and that's what's allowed us to have the lifestyle and, and the things that we, we enjoy so much for cheaper prices. Well, what's the th- statistic? Something like uh, the, the poorest 1%. Um, and now I, I can't remember if this was globally or if this was just the United States, but the lowest one percent standard of living right now, ha, you know, the lowest one percent of the population has a higher standard of living than the top one percent 150, 200 years ago or something like that because of these advances in technology and that sort of thing. And that's kind of that's kind of where we have to step back and say we are we are living better right now than any civilization in the history of the world. And it's because of these things that we're able, it's because of this economy we're able to be a part of that's not just going to stop. The cogs aren't just going to stop turning. I mean, you look at this chart that I found that went always all the way back to the 1700s. Really, population growth and GDP growth were attached to each other until we hit the 1940s. And that's where productivity just exploded. And it says GDP growth has has been even faster than population growth, given that on average every human being more resources than ever before in history. And, and I think that's something to be cheered for, that we've got all these great things. That's what our iPhones, our iPads, um, the personal computer, these type of things are really le- revolutionizing and changing the way life happens, that great thing of creative destruction. Let's continue on. It says, The legitimate question that market analysts, government forecasters, and pension consultants should answer is how that 6.6% real return can possibly be duplicated in the future given today's initial conditions, which historically have never been more favorable for corporate profits. And when I ask, how are we going to do this going forward? We talked about this in the commentary. The European crisis that's going on right now, we have, you know, an area of the world that has 330 million people. Do you realize the rising emerging markets out there have populations, was it over 4 billion? How many, how many billions? Of yeah, people? in the commentary, we said that the combined population of China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Turkey will be nearing 4 billion. So we have a rising middle class with a group of people who want color TVs, who are going to start wanting refrigerators, refrigerators. automobiles. Their lifestyle is about to increase. We've got a rising middle class in these emerging economies. I guarantee you they're going to want Coca-Cola. They're going to want restaurants. They're going to want things that we produce here in the United States or we own here in the United States. That is what gets me excited. Now, it doesn't play out well to the media because, hey, that's good news. And, you know, as everybody knows, good news doesn't get us all excited. You know, we, we much more lament about how bad things are than talking about how good things could be off of potential things. Um, he did say something I kind of, because he talked about bonds. And I, th- I thought this was very interesting that here, here's Bill, who's, uh, the biggest bond manager in the world, and he's nervous about the the bubble out there with the bond marketplace too, but he doesn't mind enjoying that bubble-type performance to make his point, but then he kind of throws a little reality here on it. It says, with long-term, long treasuries currently yielding 2.55%, it's even more of a stretch to assume that long-term bonds and the, bar, the bond market will replicate the performance of past decades. And 
there's some truth in that because what, what have we really seen since the 70s? We've seen this very secular bull market in bonds. We've been in a declining interest rate environment. And you, anybody who knows anything about basic investing 101 is that the value of your existing bonds, if interest rates are continuing to go down, your existing bonds keep getting more and more valuable. Obviously, if you have a bond that yields 6%, and now the same type of bond is being offered, a brand new issue is being offered at 3%, people are going to really want to pay a premium to get your 6% bond that's guaranteed money coming in, then they already pay to get that 3%. So they pay a premium, and that's price appreciation. Well, guess what happens, though, when you flip the script? Meaning that when you go through a period, a 20-, 30-year period, or let's just say a 10-year period, it might be coming up where inflation is starting to rear its head, where you have interest rates are probably going to have to start going up, and we leave that period of declining interest rates and go into a period of increasing interest rates, the value of your bonds actually goes the opposite way. Because if you have a 3% bond, and now they're offering you a 5% bond for the exact same product, brand new, fresh fresh issue, do you think people want to buy your 3% bond anymore? Nope. They'd rather buy your 5% bond that's being issued by the, the government. So what they'll do is you have to sell your 3% bond at a discount so that they can get that extra return that they require to match the current bond that's being sold out there on the marketplace. That probably wakes Bill up at night. I don't know if you get woken up at night when you have two point one billion, <laughs> but I got to think that probably does freak him out because I imagine he wants to be very good at what he does, right. and he he wants to, he knows he has employees that count on what his thoughts are, you know, and he wants them to be successful. So it probably does wake him up. Just because you have money doesn't mean that you don't have stress. So um, I can imagine that does play play hard on him. It goes on and it says the um, constant of six point six real appreciation therefore is a historical freak. A mutation like never to be seen again as far as we mortals are concerned. So we have the stock market that has made 6.6% on average pretty consistently for over 100 years. But Mr. Gross is saying that's not going to be the case anymore. Be careful. One of the most dangerous things that a person who's predicting can say is that this time is nothing like any time in the past. How many times have we heard that? I'm, I'm sure in that Death of Equities article, it says something very similar there in the late 70s. We'll never see what we've seen leading up to this ever again. I always get, when people tell me what unique times are, you can't go by historical norms, I always, I kind of chuckle to myself. It's just like, because uh, people think it's just that human nature is so negative, we grab a hold and we just assume things are always going to be awful. And, and if that's the case, guys, I know I've made the point in the past, if you really think the stock market is a Ponzi scheme or it's a ripoff, then what's your alternative? Where are you going to go with your money? And that's the probably the, the way I'd like to kind of close this show out, is that if Mr. Gross is right, what do you do with your money? You can't invest in stocks. You can't uh, invest in bonds. If you, are you going to stay in cash, where cash is yielding less than 1%? We know inflation is at least 3%. So if you're, if you're sitting in cash, you're going to get eaten up. Now, it's not saying don't go run out and get out of your cash for your cash, you know, your emergency reserves. We all have cash. You've got to have liquidity. There's nothing like sleeping good at night because you have your emergency reserves filled up. But when, if you, but if you take your whole portfolio and go to cash, what is that going to do for you? You're going to get your purchasing power is going to get eaten up by inflation. So do you go bonds? If you go only in bonds, I just told you, we've come through a period where we had a decreasing interest rate environment 
when we flip that over and go to an increasing interest rate environment, the, the principal of your bonds will go down. Now, they'll continue to yield 3 4%, whatever you've got structured in your bond portfolio, but the value of those bonds will actually go down. So that scares you a little bit. So what are you going to do? You just go give up on stocks? I think the answer is you got to go diversified, guys. You got to spread it out. And then you can, and the thing is, this isn't all. We're not only, it used to be you could only talk about America. It's not the case anymore. Now you can go international. We have emerging markets that have crazy things going on and opportunities that you have now a chance to get into. This is the answer is to get into a diversified portfolio that gets you enough yield to provide for cash flow in retirement, but then also gives you enough opportunity that you can get that compounding growth that's going to provide you financial independence. Now, there's another point that I wanted to make. When I, I get scared when commentators try to scare people. So I get scared because people are being scared, I guess, if you want to put it like that. But a lot of you guys, I see so much research. You know, employers are starting to give 401k matching contributions um, to their retirement plans again. And I get nervous when people write these type of articles. They love it because they, I'm sure they get a lot of attention. They get interviewed. They get to put the name of PIMCO out there. So it really, there's, they get rewarded for doing this type of behavior. But what I get nervous about is the unintended consequences. There's somebody who's in their 20s and 30s, maybe even 40s, who has a 401k or a simple or some type of retirement plan with their employer where the employer is saying, hey, if you put some money in this plan, I'm going to give you 3%. I'm going to give you 4% or 5% if you'll just put in this set amount of money. I'm always worried somebody's out there going to go, yeah, but I don't want to lose money. I'm scared of the stock market. And they, they forego that free money from their employer and they get frozen into doing any activity. That's not the answer, guys. Don't let this noise of the media and all of us guys who are kind of financial nerds where we get so excited to talk about what the next big talking head has said. Don't let it freak you out. Put together a plan, a diversified plan, dollar cost average. Figure out, you know, I've told you if you're, if you're trying to figure out what's a good rule of thumb, 15 to 20% of your gross wages, and you can count your retirement plan assets in that number. So if you're putting, you know, 6% into your employer's plan, that 6% counts towards the 15%. Um, but that's, if you could do that, I promise you, you're going to wake up 20, 30 years in the future, and you go, I'm going to be okay. It doesn't matter what happens to Social Security. It doesn't matter what happens here. Because overall, people are going to find ways to make money. I have no doubt about it. People are very innovative. I mean, there's no telling what's going to happen. So when you hear people try to scare you and say, this is dead, or this has never been like this, rest assured, it's going to be okay. You just have to stay coarse and do what you're supposed to and not react. Reacting is the worst thing that you can do. Bo, I know um, I've kind of told you, I said, Bo, I'm going to need you to help keep the ship straight today. But, um, you know, and, and you're like, okay, I can do that. And then here I am, I've gabbed and gabbed and gabbed. Anything that you wanted to throw on top of all that? No, I, th- I think it was great. And I think, um, I don't know why Bill wrote this commentary. Because basically what he said is, look, stocks aren't good. Bonds aren't good. At least, you know, I don't know. He didn't He didn't really offer any solutions. All he did was wrote this stormy. Sounds like Bill's depressed. Exactly. He wrote this story. He needs to come hang out at Preston and Cleveland for a few days. And I like Bill. I mean, kind I of get rejuvenated. I don't know if Bill is the type that, um, you know, he wants to go to Jailhouse Brewing, you know, right. and check out, you know, do a beer tour with my buddy who has um, that brewing company that we've, we've talked about. We've done some team building. 
But, you know, Bill has done incredible things. And I just be careful with the power of your microphone sometimes because I want it to be a positive thing. And if, you, if you're giving your opinion and there's not really, I mean, bona fide, tied in facts to support, I, I wonder why you're making waves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I, I, you know, hopefully this will just die down. But I want to give you guys kind of the counterpoint. There's plenty of other counterpoints if you go do some Google searches. But I want to give you the money guy perspective because, Rob, you know, one of our listeners asked us about it, and um, we're always here to see what we can do to help out. You, too, can write the show, Brian, at money-guy.com if you have any show topics or questions or things that we can look into for you. But we just want to thank you guys for listening, letting us, you know, come into your commute, your office, wherever you decide to listen to us. You know, work out. Yeah, I've had people tell us they clean the house with us in the background. Obviously, we're very motivating. I wish I got the same effect with my own voice, you know, that I clean and want to do other things more productive. But thank you for letting us in your house, your car, wherever, and we'll be back in about two weeks. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. (laughs) 